just sing it, but could we all just read that together out loud one time? Let's do it. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. That's the, the hook of the song. And the first two words of that hook are so important. But you. See, I just have this conviction that the but you is, is something that communicates that this is different. You know, it's, it's, it's separate and contrasting from everything else that's been said. Now, you haven't read it yet this week, but we're going to read it in a minute. But when he gets to verse 8, he says, but you. In other words, this is what's happening everywhere else. This is my reality. This is other people's situation. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. And can I just say to us this morning that when it comes to our praise and our worship of God, when it comes to moving into God's presence as we have this morning, you have to have a but you in your praise. What I mean by that is this, you have to have a a mentality of faith that recognizes, regardless of how this week has gone, regardless of whether it's been a great week or a bad week, there's a moment where you plant your pivot foot and you turn your heart towards the Father and you say, but you, but you, Lord, are exalted. That's praise. See, Thanksgiving is, is giving God thanks for everything that he's done, and we should do that. We should count our blessings. But, but you've lived long enough to know that there are times and seasons in our life where you can't, you can't find the blessings of God to count them. And when you go through the valley of difficult days and you face sorrows, oftentimes our song gets washed in the outgoing tide of sorrow. And we, we don't know what to be thankful for because all we can see and all we can feel is despair. But praise is different. Praise is not just thank you, God, for, for what you've done. Praise is worshiping God for who he is. Praise just plants a foot and turns upward and says, God, you are exalted, but you, oh Lord, are forever exalted. The reality is you, you may be here this morning and you've had the worst week of your life. You would come in the door today and you would just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sick in my body. I don't feel good. I hurt. I'm in pain. I've got a a bad diagnosis. And yet, here you are. You came this morning because you have experienced what I'm talking about. You got up this morning and you planted your foot. Yeah, You know what? I could stay in the bed. I I got plenty of reasons to stay in bed. But you are exalted. So I'm going to go to the house of the Lord. You might be here today and you say, man, my, my marriage is falling apart. My, my family is falling apart. You know, we could really just use a, a day to just do nothing. But you are exalted forever. And you plant your foot and you recognize that beyond all the stuff of this life, there is a king who sits enthroned in majesty. He's unshaken by what shakes you. And maybe that's not you. Maybe you're on the other side of the equation, and this has been the best week of your life. And you're saying, man, I just landed my dream job. Man, let's go out. We could celebrate. But it's Sunday. You are exalted. I know I got the promotion, but you, Lord, are forever exalted. And you, too, planted your foot today. And you said, you know, I got, there's, a, there's a but you in my life, and it's greater than my good things. All the stuff that's working for me pales in comparison to who you are. You say, man, I'm feeling good. 
Man, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting it hard at the gym. The diet's on point. I'm down five pounds. The beach bod is coming back. You could have slipped off to the shore. But you are exalted. That's what I'm talking about when I say there's a pivot to praise that recognizes whether it's all good or all bad. It's all beneath his lordship. He is exalted. And this hook in the song, Psalm 92 and verse 8, is surrounded by three verses. And so what I want to do for a few moments is we're going to walk through this chapter. and I want to show you the three verses that surround the chorus of the exalted Savior. They are the praise, the power, and the people of the Lord. So if you're a note taker, number one, the praise of the Lord. And we got to go right to the very heading at the beginning of this psalm. Because in my Bible, the heading says it is for the Sabbath day. And I thought that was significant. You know what I discovered as I studied this this past week? That out of 150 psalms, this is the only one that was uniquely designated for the Sabbath day. Now for us, our Sabbath day is Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. This is the Lord's day. And so this is our Sabbath and this is our song. And it begins with these words in verse 1. It says, it is good to praise the Lord and to make music to your name, O Most High. Can, can I just encourage you? Don't, don't devalue the significance of this statement. It is good. See, in our culture, when somebody says it's good, that we can almost look at that as a negative. Like, you mean it's not great? It's, it's not fantastic? It's just It's just good. But can I just remind you that the Bible says that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus said in Matthew, he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. In other words, the good that you do is going to be your greatest witness in the earth. St. Francis of Assisi said it like this. He said, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. What was he saying? He was saying that the good deeds, the life you live, is going to have an impact on the world around you. And don't misunderstand the significance of your worship, even your praise. He said, it is good to praise the Lord. It's good for you. But it's also good from you. Now, some of us go, well, you know, I'm not really much of a singer. I mean, I'll pray, I'll read my Bible, but the the praise thing, leave that to the musicians. Listen, this is not about musicianship. This is not about your ability to sing or carry a tune. This is about praising the Lord. The Bible says it is good when you praise the Lord. The Bible says this, that the Lord delights in the praises of his people. He actually takes pleasure in what we're doing here this morning. You ever try to give a gift to somebody that has everything? Hard, right? You know, like that that one friend that seems like they have everything. I I don't know what, I, I can't get them anything. I can't afford to get them anything they want. They have everything. What could you give the God of the universe? He delights in praises. It's good to praise his name. 
Not only is it good for you and, and good from you, it's good for other people too. In Psalm chapter 40, it says this, that God puts a new song in the hearts of his people. He gives you a new song. And the reason he gives a new song, it says that many others will see it and fear. They'll reverence God and they'll put their trust in the living God. Which means when we worship together, when we praise God on the Sabbath day, there's an evangelistic element to it. I mean, I I could stand up here and sing all by myself and it, it might be entertaining, but it doesn't have the same power as when all the people of God who have been redeemed out of all kinds of different stuff come together and we all lift up the name of Jesus in unity. And we begin to bless the Lord. There's something powerful about that. There's something that causes a dying world to sit up and take notice. He said they'll see it and they'll, they'll put fear in God and they'll trust in him. The Bible says it's good that you praise the Lord. In Deuteronomy, it tells us that, that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's that's your personal worship. The next verse says, impress these things upon your children. See, a lot of parents have made the mistake of thinking their their number one responsibility is to impress these things upon their children. It's not. That's your number two responsibility. Your number one responsibility is to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then, verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6, impress them upon your children. See, it's good for you to praise the Lord first. If you don't do it first, you're just going to impose religion on your kids. But if you love the Lord with a passionate, authentic praise, then you've got something to give. We got to praise the Lord. Look at verse two. It says this, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Now, I already said earlier, this is a song for the Sabbath day. But can I just emphasize what verse 2 communicates to us? It's the Sabbath day. We're declaring your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. In other words, it's not the Sabbath hour and a half. Come on. I know it's the 11 o'clock service, but I mean, I mean, come, come 1231, 1232. I got folks looking for the door. I got folks wondering if I know there's a clock in the back of the room. Why? Because this is the hour and a half that we've allotted for church. But can I just say to you, and we don't have to stay in church all day to be spiritual, but it's the Lord's day. And the Bible says we begin this day by thanking God for his mercies in the morning. That word is is love in the morning, his mercy. It's the word hesed. Sometimes it's translated love, sometimes it's translated mercy, sometimes it's translated steadfast love, but it means all those things. Lamentation says it this way, that his mercies, same word, are new every morning. Aren't you glad that you got up this morning with a clean slate? Some of you, you're definitely glad because you used up all of yesterday's mercy by about, you know, 6 p.m. So you were just kind of skating into Sunday like, whoo, I got here. But they're new every Morning, and then it says, and they declare, proclaim your faithfulness at night. Now, come on, if we were honest, some of us, we, we come into Sunday some week, and we are so desperately in need of God's mercy that we, we'll talk ourselves out of even coming to church. You'll just, I, I don't deserve to be there. 
That's the, the lie that the enemy puts in your mind. I, I, I can't go to church. Man, I can't go to church today. Man, I, I, can't even, I can't even be. If I showed up, you heard somebody say this, if I showed up, the place would burn to the ground. I think I hear somebody, some estranged relative of somebody say that at every funeral I do. You know, I ask, well, do you go to church? Anymore? Oh, if I went, I think the place would fall. The doors would cave in, you know. And, and we believe that. That we, we can't come into God's house because of where we are and what's going on in our life. But here's what I've discovered to be true. If we will come into uh, the morning declaring the mercy of God, then we'll always have a declaration of his faithfulness to give at night. See, we feel like I, have, I haven't been faithful. I, I, haven't, I haven't let God lead me through the difficult seasons, and so I probably shouldn't even come this morning. But if we just get up in the morning and recognize the mercy's new, the mercy's there, and we would walk in that mercy and receive that mercy, then we'll always have a declaration of faithfulness at night. Can I just encourage you practically? Don't spend your Sunday night moaning about Monday. Instead, do what this psalm says. It says, proclaiming your faithfulness at night. I mean, Monday's coming, but truth be told, you probably spent last Sunday night complaining about this past Monday. And guess what? You made it. You survived. God was faithful. And so get up on Sunday morning and declare that. Declare his mercies. God, you've been so good. You've been better than I deserve. That's what mercy means. You've been so good to me. And so on, on the night uh, when the sun's setting down, I'm just going to declare your faithfulness. I'm not going to worry about what other things I'm going to need mercy for. I'm just going to praise you for all that you've done and for all that you are. Look at the next verse with me. We, we talked a little bit about the, the praise of the Lord. Now I want to talk about the power of the Lord. Because in verse 4, it says, you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. Now, God has done some incredible things with his hands. The Bible says he measures the oceans in the palm of his hand. The Bible says that, that he formed man from the dust of the earth with his hands. And, and we, could just, we could just marvel at that. I mean, that's pretty amazing. He formed us, but, but the psalmist goes beyond that. He didn't just say, you made me. He said, you make me glad. You, you've, you've done something more than just created me, Lord. You've given me joy. You made me glad. The Bible says in Isaiah 61, he gives beauty in place of ashes. He gives gladness in place of mourning. He gives a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. He makes me glad. I, I want you to just see something about this song. If you just look at the first five verses, I want you to notice the theme of the song. I want you to notice who the song is about. If you're a person like me that likes to underline things in your Bible, just underline everywhere in the first five verses that you see the word your and then the word that comes behind it. You begin to read this psalm and you see the theme just in the first five verses of your name and your love and your faithfulness, your hands, 
your works, and your thoughts. Can I just challenge you this morning to consider what is your motivation for coming to church? I think David's motivation was pretty clear. He was focused on the Lord. He was focused on what God had done. It's no wonder that the next verse says this. Verse 6 says, senseless people do not know and fools do not understand. See, there are, there are people that they're only, they're just looking for something for themselves. Even when they come to church, it's the what's in it for me mentality. And these are the kinds of people that they, they come in and they leave and they just, ah, I just didn't feel anything. They're the kind of folks that go, I just don't understand. Like, what's the big deal with going to church all the time? I mean, they just stand and they sing and then you sit and you just listen to some guy or some lady talk for a while. Like, what, what's that all about? It, it doesn't really, it doesn't do anything for me. But can I just make a statement that the whole church needs to be reminded of today? We are here on our Sabbath day. We are here, first and foremost, not to receive anything, but to bring something. He is exalted. He's worthy. And so we just plant a pivot foot of praise, and we get up on Sunday morning, and we say, this is the Lord's day. And if he never does another thing for me, he still deserves my worship. He still deserves my praise. I'm still going to bring him the offering of my life, a living sacrifice, into his house. We come to bring something. But, but David said, fools don't understand. Senses, senseless people, they don't know. And, and what was it he was saying they don't know? Look at the next verse. Verse 7, he said, they don't know that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. What he's saying, he's talking about the power of the Lord, the power of the Lord. He says, here's what doesn't make sense to the senseless people. They see the wicked prosper and they see the faithful pursuing the heart of God. And it doesn't make sense to them because they have a limited perspective. And it's the same struggle that Asaph had in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, Asaph said, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, my foot almost slipped. I almost, I almost went under. I mean, I almost walked away from the faith. I almost backslid when I saw how good they had it and how tough it is for the righteous people of God. I started to wonder if it was worth the sacrifice. I started wondering if it was worth walking the, the line of integrity, of doing the right thing when, when nobody else does. And Asaph described in Psalm 73 what was happening in his heart at that season of his life. He said in verse 21 and 22, he said, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. That, that's, that was the condition of his life. Asaph said, I, when I was senseless. I was a brute beast. I didn't understand. Why? Because my eyes were on all the, the things of this world and all the people of this world. But then something changed for him in the middle of Psalm 73. He said, that's the way I felt. That's where my heart was until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord. What happened is he got a different perspective. All of a sudden, he saw what, what David said in Psalm 92. 
He saw that, yes, the wicked spring up like grass, and and all evildoers, they seem to be flourishing, but I also realized they're going to be destroyed. Because the grass, it grows up, and then it's, it's cut down, it's thrown into the fire, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, and that's the way it is with the prosperity of the wicked. People that are just living for the here and now, they, they don't understand it. The foolish don't get it. To the senseless, it doesn't make sense. But he's talking about the power of the Lord. He's saying, I have a different perspective. I can see, God, that you're ruling over all of it. You're in control over every gain, over every loss. You're in control over every bull and over every bear in the economy. He's in control over every elephant and every donkey in our politics. He's in control. And so the senseless don't get it. The foolish don't know. And they can get all bent out of shape about these things and and what's happening. But he says there's something that is over all of that. What is it? It's verse 8. But you, Lord, are exalted forever. You're exalted. You're over all of it. And while some may not understand it, God, I understand. Now look at the next verse. Verse 9, he goes on to say, for surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. He understood the power of the Lord. And that perspective shifted the way he sees everything. It it became the theme song of his life. I'm going to praise the Lord. Because the power of the Lord is sovereign over all of this. Over every bit of it. Now, let me give you the third verse to this song. I want to talk about the people of the Lord for just a moment. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. Now, that probably hasn't happened to any of you this week. Probably haven't had your horn exalted or any oil poured on you. But let me explain what he's saying. The the horn symbolizes authority. All through the scripture, when the horn is raised up, it's like the the large horn of an animal, the wild ox. He says, "My, my horn, you've exalted. In other words, saying, God, you've given me position. You've given me authority. You've given me opportunity. And then he said, the oil has been poured on me. Now, the oil always represents the presence of the Lord. The oil, that's why when people come to the altar for prayer, oftentimes we'll take oil and we'll anoint you because it's symbolic of the presence of the Lord. But it's not just his presence, it's his enabling power. The oil represents the power of the Spirit of God. And so as the oil's applied, we're saying that God is not only present, but his ability and his power is here. And David said this, David said, here's what you've done for me. You've given me the opportunity You've risen my horn, and you've given me the ability. You've given me the oil to be able to accomplish the task. And look, if you have the oil, but you don't have the horn, you're going to be frustrated. Because you've got what you need, but you don't have the opportunity to do the task that God has for you. But conversely, it's also true. If you, if you have the opportunity, you have the horn, you have the position, but you don't have the oil. 
You don't have the anointing. You don't have the spirit empowerment. You're not going to be frustrated. You're going to fail. You're going to fail miserably, just like Samson did. The Bible said after his head was shaved and his power was gone, he ran out as before to defeat the Philistines, but he did not know the spirit of the Lord was not with him. Maybe you serve in a a position of leadership. This is a great leadership principle for us. I'm going to challenge you to make sure that you always have the horn and the oil. That you don't just try to get better and better and craft your skill and hone and perfect and all of that and think that somehow by your own ingenuity, you're going to accomplish the purpose of God. You won't. You need the oil. You need his presence and his power. The Bible also says, study to show yourself approved. And we can't just walk out and say, well, I'm anointed, and and, and then try to work outside of the authority that Jesus established. So you you have to be elevated to a position. There's a lot of people out there that are doing damage to the church because they say, well, God called me. God anointed me. But they're not submitted to authority. They've got oil and no horn. I don't have time to stay on that. Look at the next verse with me. Verse 11. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. Here's what I love about this verse. It's kind of peculiar. David is speaking from the the perspective of a, a bystander, of an eyewitness. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament and David, you know David's a warrior. I mean, David's a fighter. And he's not just one of those guys that, you know, that just sits in the background and says charge. And No, he's on the front lines. He's leading the charge. In fact, he wasn't even able to build a temple for the Lord. And the reason the Bible says is because he had too much blood on his hands. I mean, this is a guy with dirt under his nails and blood under his nails. He is a fighter. When he says, I won a victory, he probably means I literally won the victory. But yet here he is, a man of war with a lifetime of experience. And here's what he says. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. And I'm going to tell you why I believe he said it. Because this is the Sabbath day song. This is not a song that he's going to sing, look what I've done and look what I've accomplished. This is an opportunity for David to say, look what the Lord has done. And can I just say to us as the church, that's our theme song every Sunday. When we come together, we don't come to say, look what we've accomplished or look who we are or look at my gifts and look at my ability. No, we come into this house to lift up the banner of Jesus for him to be exalted. That's our theme song. And we say, look what the Lord has done. It's good to give him praise. And so David says, look what the Lord has done. Now, now, what's the application? I mean, if you're here and you're still kind of waiting, like, what what does this mean to me? I mean, just just lift up Jesus? Is Is that it today? Well, let me tell you, there's actually a lot of application in this psalm for you and I, if we will commit to honor the Lord, to keep the Sabbath day, to exalt Jesus with our lives. There's incredible, incredible blessings here. And I just want to show some of them to you as we move towards the end of this chapter. Look at verse 12 down through 14. It says this, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They'll grow like a cedar of Lebanon. 
Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. Verse 14, they will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. He's talking about the righteous. These are the people of the Lord. By the way, that's you and me. It's easy to kind of disqualify ourselves and figure somebody else is more righteous, but the Bible says that, in fact, we have no righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, pretty dirty, but he has given us his righteousness. He has made us righteous. So if you're saved, if you put faith in Jesus, this is talking about you. And it says the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. I got to thinking about that because I don't know about you, but when I, when I think of a palm tree, I think about coconuts. But in the Middle East, date palms flourish. And dates are a dietary staple. So what he's saying is in a, in a region that it, it's difficult to grow stuff, you got the palm tree here thriving, producing fruit consistently. And he says, that's what the righteous are like. When the righteous just stay planted in the house of the Lord, that's what verse 13 says. When they're planted in the house of the Lord, they stay fruitful. Even at a time when it should be a drought, even at a time when, when nobody else, uh, it's not working for anyone else, there's something that's just, it's like you're tapped into a, a, a different stream, and there's life flowing to you. And he says, you're like the palm if you stay planted. Now, you don't plant a tree in a sanctuary, but you do plant a Christian. And he said, if you'll stay planted inside in the church, You'll be like this palm. You'll be flourishing. And then he says this. I guess one tree analogy wasn't enough. He said, you're going to be like the cedars of Lebanon. And I got to looking at the cedars of Lebanon saying, well, why did David say that? What is it about these trees? And all through the Old Testament, you read about the cedars of Lebanon. And these trees were, were, were coveted. They were desired. Unlike the trees in Jerusalem, the cedars of Lebanon, they would grow 100 feet tall. And the base would be six feet in diameter. David and Solomon both, when they were king, they, they traded on ships to get the cedars of Lebanon to have some of this timber cut down so that they could build their own palaces. The cedars of Lebanon was the wood that was used to build the temple for the Lord. And, and David says, that's, that's what the righteous are going to be like. If you stay planted in the house of the Lord, your strength is going to be uncommon. You're going to grow to heights that people just don't see around here. I mean, if you want to have, you want to have that kind of strength, you, know, you got to import that stuff. It's not normal here. But in this community, in, in this region, people look at your life and they go, man, there's something different about you. You're like the cedars of Lebanon. Those trees were very aromatic as well. And the Bible says about us as the Christians, Paul said, you are the aroma. You are the fragrance of Christ in the earth. And that's what it's going to be like for those that get planted in the house of God. What, what am I saying to you as the people of God? I'm saying this. Get planted and stay planted in the house of the Lord. I was looking at some of the numbers this week. If, if everyone in our congregation, now I'm not talking about everybody that's ever been here or everybody that shows up once because they were visiting on holiday. 
I'm talking about the people that we classify as our congregation. This is your church. You're a part of us. You're, you've been involved. You, you've given. You've participated. You've served. If everybody that was in our congregation came every weekend, we'd have over 450 people here. I had to check the numbers twice. But it's true. We have 350 people that are considered a part of our congregation. Again, I'm not talking about people that were on the list and their name's on an epitaph somewhere because they died 10 years ago. I'm talking about people that are a part of this church on a somewhat regular basis. There's 350 in that category, and then there's another 100 in another category that we've considered inactive. I mean, they're still a part of us. They still interact with us online. If somebody dies in their family, I'm probably doing the funeral. If somebody gets married, we're probably doing the wedding. You know, they're a part of us, another 100 people. That doesn't even count the over 300 people that have filled out a Connect card. They've been here, and they've expressed interest and said, yeah, I'm interested in connecting, and I want to know more about the church. There's another 300-plus people there. Now, I'm not preaching to all those people that aren't here. I'm talking to you this morning. And saying, we got to get planted. And if you're on the fence there, and here we are at the beginning of this summer season, let me just challenge you to get planted, to, to plant a foot every Sunday and pivot towards God and say, regardless of how this week has gone, good or bad, you, Lord, are forever exalted. And so I'm going to come with my Sabbath day song. I'm going to bring my praise into your house. And if you'll do that, he says, you're going to be fruitful like the palm. You're going to be strong like the cedars of Lebanon. And he, he goes on and he says, and they will bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. What about your spiritual life? Are you flourishing or are you floundering? Because God's no respecter of persons. But he can't, he can't water what isn't planted. And he says, even in their old age, they'll, they'll bear fruit. I was so blessed earlier by Larry's testimony. Larry was in this church in 1930-something. Whatever he says is probably true. I'm just going with it. I mean, I, don't, I haven't been here long enough to argue with Larry. He's been here since the 30s. And you know what amazes me about that? He and his wife, Jolene, they are leading a fruitful ministry in this church today. They're leading a, a life group. They're leading our senior adult group. They're, they're vibrant and thriving in ministry today. And that's exactly what the psalmist said would be the case. There's a lot of people that, you know, their testimony is, I survived. I don't want that to be my testimony. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. And, and there's a prescription for how to do that. Stay plugged in. Doesn't mean you're not going to go through difficult seasons. Doesn't mean it's not going to be tough sometimes. But stay plugged in, and you'll bear fruit in old age. You'll stay fresh and green. Now look at the last verse with me. Verse 15 says, Proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. If you can imagine this, verse 15 and verse 2 are like bookends on this song. 
And just like bookends on a shelf, they, they keep everything standing upright so it doesn't fall over. They keep everything pointed in the right direction. And the word that you see in both verse 2 and verse 15 is proclaim. In other words, this isn't just the theme song of the life of the righteous. They're actually singing it. They're proclaiming it. They're saying something. And looking at verse 15, there's three things that they're saying. Number one, they're saying who Jesus is. He says, the Lord is upright. Verse 15, the Lord is upright. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to say who he is. Paul said it like this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We're called to represent him. Not enough to just have a conviction in your heart. You got to say who he is. And then secondly, we don't just say who he is, but we say what he means to us. That my conversation is not just, well, you know, the preacher said, or well, you know, my church believes, or no. What does it mean to you? He said, first the Lord is upright, but then he said, he is my rock. In other words, he's the foundation of my life. My security is not in the throne that I sit on, David would say, but my security is in Jesus who sits on a higher throne. He is exalted. He's my rock. He's my foundation. And then finally, he says who he isn't. He says there is no wickedness in him. In other words, there's a defense of the faith that that David would look at the wicked and the senseless, and he would say, they don't know. And the fools, they don't understand. They see the world through a dark lens and a limited perspective. And it doesn't make sense to them why things are going the way they're going. But what they don't understand, I understand. God is not wicked because there's evil in the world. No, I understand that though the wicked flourish like the grass, they're going to be here today and they're going to be gone tomorrow. But the Lord is forever exalted. He's exalted. I I like the way that that Paul the Apostle talked about the exalted Lord. And I'm going to ask Morgan to come back to the piano. And I want to just read to you Philippians 2. And then we're going to pray together. Beginning in verse 6 through 11, Paul is describing this exalted Savior. And he says in verse 6, who being in very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a picture. Can you imagine it? A day when every knee will bow every knee on the earth every knee in heaven 
is going to bow. And even every knee under the earth. In other words, he's saying there's a day coming when those who have died will be resurrected from the dead. You know what they're going to do? They're going to bow their knee to the lordship of Jesus. That's how high God has exalted him. Those that live their entire lives maligning his name, saying, I don't believe. One day, they're going to wake up to the reality of an exalted savior. They're going to bow their knee at his feet. I don't really know what the devil looks like, but I bet he has knees. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is exalted. The king is exalted. And I will praise his name. See, here's here's the grace that is ours today. Here's the mercy that is new this morning. We have the opportunity to choose to bow. One day that choice will not be afforded. But today we have the choice to recognize Jesus as Lord and to make a profession of our own volition that says he is exalted over my life. He's the Lord. He's the leader. I'm not. Even the stuff that doesn't make sense to me, the stuff that I can't compartmentalize about faith and and if God is a good God, why does this happen? And, And if God loves me, why did he allow that? No. You get to make a choice today that says, I recognize that that he is sitting on a throne. He's sovereign and he's over all of this. And today, if you have not made that choice, I want to invite you to do it right now. To make a decision to say, Jesus, I recognize you are Lord. And I don't want to wait to bow by force. I want to surrender right now my heart and my life to you. I want to pray for you all over this room. In fact, I want to ask you if you'll stand with me. All of us, let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're standing in reverence and honor of the presence of the King. If some national leader were to walk in the room, it would be proper decorum for us to stand to honor them. But today we stand for a higher authority. We stand because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is in this place. If you're here today and you've never bowed your knee, you've never humbled your heart to make Jesus the Lord of your life, but you need to do that today. I want to invite you to make that decision right now. Maybe you're here and it's something you've prayed in the past, but that rebel heart has just It keeps coming back. And you would say today, you're far from God. You haven't lived, surrendered to his lordship. But you need to. If that's you, today, I want to invite you to make a decision to say Jesus is the Lord of my life. I'm going to count to three. And when I get to three, if that's you and you say, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life, I want you to just throw your hand up in the air. If that's you today, one, two, 
three. Three, if that's you, just lift up your hand and say, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to acknowledge today. I want to acknowledge him today. Thank you, sir. I want to acknowledge him today. You can put your hand back down after you've raised it. Anyone else, you would say, this is my pivot moment. No more excuses. He's Lord of all. I'm going to trust him with my life. Father, today I thank you for, for this one who's raised their hand. Lord, I thank you that even right now you're dealing with all of our hearts. God, you're reprioritizing our lives around your established throne. So God, right now, in our hearts, we bow. In our hearts, we submit ourselves completely to you. Lord, for all that was, all the gains, all the losses, all the things of my past, I begin again today saying, but you, Lord, are forever exalted. But you, Lord, are forever exalted exalted. Come on, if Jesus is the Lord of your life right now, I want you to just pray that prayer out loud after me. Say, but you, Lord, are forever exalted. Come on, let's say it one more time with a little conviction. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. Thank you, Jesus, that right now, not only do you sit enthroned in heaven, but God, you sit on the throne of our hearts. Lord, thank you for being the leader of our lives. Thank you for being our Savior, our Redeemer. God, we worship you today. We worship you today. Lord, we declare with one voice what the Lord has done. You are faithful. You are good. You are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus, we declare your goodness and your Lordship today. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. 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 Can we just give God praise? Come on.